Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, December 27th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what is the real driver of all of humanity's innovations, doctrines, and oddities? According to some psychologists, disgust. Plus, the surprisingly recent history of counting down to midnight on New Year's Eve. And forget smell-o-vision, now there's TV you can taste. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Feeling all the blood drain from your head and bile rise up at the back of your throat. Yelping and dropping the item you had in your hand, taking a leap backwards to get as far away from it as possible. Wrinkling your nose as you dare to survey the offending item. These are all typical responses of disgust. When we smell something absolutely putrid, when we find a hair in our pasta, when we accidentally catch sight of a gruesomely injured fellow human, and so much more. Some common triggers of disgust and others specific to individuals. Some call disgust one of the six basic emotions, alongside anger, surprise, fear, enjoyment, and sadness. And some scholars believe it's the one that really can explain so much about what makes humans tick and why we've done much of what we've done over the millennia and across cultures. Molly Young wrote a fascinating piece about some of these theories for the New York Times Magazine today, and I wanted to share some takeaways that really got me thinking. So first, quoting from the Times, Although the input of disgust, that is, what exactly is considered disgusting, varies from place to place, its output is narrow, with a characteristic facial expression, called the gape face, that includes a lowered jaw and often an extended tongue. Sometimes it's a wrinkled nose and a retraction of the upper lip. The gape face is often accompanied by nausea and a desire to run away or otherwise gain distance from the offensive thing, as well as the urge to clean oneself, end quote. And Jung goes on to outline the work of three scholars of disgust. First was Oral Kolnai, writing in 1929, shortly followed by Andrus Angel, writing in 1941, both from Hungary, but neither ever referencing the other in their work. Quoting again, Kolnai was the first to arrive at a number of insights that are now commonly accepted in the field. He pointed to the paradox that disgusting things often hold a curious enticement. Think of the Q-tip you inspect after withdrawing it from a waxy ear canal, or the existence of reality TV shows about plastic surgery or fear factor. He identified the senses of smell, taste, sight, and touch as the primary sites of entry, and pointed out that hearing isn't a strong vector for disgust, end quote. Kolnai also believed something about a dynamic process played a role in disgust. He gave an example of the disgust we feel towards corpses, but not skeletons. Both should remind us of death, but it's the decomposing corpse, quote, the fact that it changed color and form, produced a shifting array of odors, end quote, that tends to trigger a disgust response in most humans, not skeletons, which we tend to think of as typically innocuous or even fun. Angel, writing a few years later, added that disgust also has to have some association beyond just the sensory experience. He gives the example of walking through a field and passing a shack with a really strong smell, which he originally thought was a decaying animal. He felt all the physical reactions of disgust. But upon further investigation, he realized the smell was just glue. And since he had positive associations with glue, like thinking of carpentry projects, his disgust reaction immediately vanished. 
touched. And part of this could be because disgust isn't just about something smelling or looking or tasting bad. It's the fear of being harmed by it. And that goes back to how our reaction is usually to distance ourselves, and sometimes we feel an urge to clean ourselves. A few decades later, we got some more theories and experiments from a man who has become the preeminent theorist on disgust, University of Pennsylvania psychologist Paul Rosen. Rosen originally believed that it all went back to food, specifically humans as omnivores. Quote, Unlike koalas, who eat almost nothing but eucalyptus leaves, humans must gaze at a vast range of eating options and figure out what to put in our mouths. The phrase omnivore's dilemma is one of Rosen's many coinages. Michael Pollan later borrowed it. Disgust, he argued, evolved as one of the great determinants of what to eat. If a person had zero sense of disgust, she would probably eat something gross and die. On the other hand, if a person was too easily disgusted, she would probably fail to consume enough calories and would also die. It was best to be somewhere in the middle, approaching food with a healthful blend of neophobia, fear of the new, and neophilia, love of the new. It was Rosen's contention that all forms of disgust grew from our revulsion at the prospect of ingesting substances that we shouldn't, like worms or feces, end quote. That can't be the whole story, though, and Rosen knew it. We get disgusted with many other things that have nothing to do with food, like body odors, sexual taboos, and insects, to name a few. It can also be individualized or vary across cultures. So in the 80s, he conducted a series of experiments with his team. They did things like pouring a person two glasses of orange juice in new, clean cups, and then telling them that they had a sterilized, dead, perfectly safe, cockroach that they were going to drop in the juice and then seeing if anyone drank that and then seeing if anyone chose to drink that juice which of course almost no one wanted to through other experiments like this that all turned out exactly how one would expect the point was proven that disgust quote could be motivated primarily by ideational factors by what a person knew or thought she knew about the object at hand End quote. And this goes along with the hypothesis of another scholar, William Ian Miller, who says that we can't be disgusted without being aware that we're disgusted. You have to be conscious of your disgust to really feel it. And also that we don't really know if non-human animals experience disgust at all. Dislike, sure, but disgust? Which feeds into Rosen's animal reminder theory, that disgust is a reaction to all of our very animal characteristics. It's a way of, quote, strenuously ignoring the mountain of evidence that humans are, in fact, mammals who eat, excrete, bleed, rut, and die just like every other mammal, end quote. And there have also been experiments done that accurately predict where a person falls politically based on their disgust response, with people who are a bit more ideologically conservative having a higher disgust response than those who are more liberal. Jonathan Haidt, a student of Rosen's, studied this from another angle. He studied moral psychology and noticed that many cultures and religions had lots of rules about purity and pollution, some practical, like how to handle food and prevent disease, and others about matters seen as taboo. He found one of the only groups that didn't have such purity and pollution rules or norms were Western secular progressives. But they joined others in the frequent use of the word disgusting when referring to things like racism and brutality or hypocrisy. 
This more metaphorical use of the word disgusting is apparently prevalent across languages. Quoting again, If the initial function of disgust was like a piece of caution tape plastered over our mouths, the tape had, over time, wound itself around other holes to regulate sexual activity and our minds to regulate moral activity. If it seems bizarre that disgust sensitivity and politics should be so closely correlated, it's important to remember that disgust sensitivity is really measuring our feelings about purity and pollution, and these, in turn, contribute to our construction of moral systems, and it's our moral systems that guide our political orientations, end quote. But disgust can also bring us together or we at least have an urge to attempt to do so, like when someone sees or smells something disgusting and immediately tells everyone else to experience it too, wanting validation, but also to share. Again, the social creatures thing. So disgust touches so many parts of our lives. Whether through pure evolution or the development of various cultural norms, disgust has served to protect us against things that could, or perhaps just that we perceive could, kill us. And our avoidance of what disgusts us, our desire to purify, has good and bad sides. It can be bad when it takes the form of disgust towards an entire group of people and taking action to oppress or abuse that group of people but, quoting once more from the New York Times, purification rites may also be healthful, like washing your hands, or ritually significant, like baptism. We will never disentangle ourselves from the instinct to purify, even as we name different reasons for doing it. Justice, patriotism, progress, tradition, freedom, public health, God, science. Beneath it all will be a confused omnivore, stumbling upon a dewy mushroom in the forest with no clue what will happen if she eats it. End quote. Twenty twenty two is just around the corner, and though our celebrations may be a bit more subdued this year, one thing many folks will still do is count down the seconds just before midnight. But why do we do this? When did it start? Historian Alexis McCrossan, who focuses on the history of timekeeping, which sounds awesome, recently wrote about the surprisingly recent history of this tradition for Zocalo Public Square. She shares how countdowns originally had negative connotations. They were countdowns to disaster, apocalyptic countdowns. Quote, Though disaster has always been a part of American life, the threat of nuclear annihilation introduced pervasive existential fears. Notably, in 1947, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists introduced the Doomsday Clock, which to this day provides a visual reckoning of just how close we are to apocalypse. In the years that followed, these same scientists were the ones who brought the term countdown to the American lexicon, end quote. That even the English term countdown could be so recent was absolutely shocking to me, but a cursory look at the Oxford English Dictionary confirmed it. The transitive to count down doesn't appear until the 1950s, and countdown as a single noun originated in the U.S. in 1953 from articles reporting on the atomic bomb test in Nevada. 
Fearful countdowns continued in the movies and on TV, most significantly from Alfred Hitchcock showing countdown timers on homemade bombs. But then, McCrossan points out, in 1961, the public got their first taste of a positive countdown, the televised launch of America's first human space flight. As she put it, quote, Time did not end, as apocalyptic countdowns had threatened. Instead, a new clock began, end quote. Now, countdowns, of course, were not new to scientists or in general, but the public concept of literally counting down number by number, second by second to an event and calling that activity a countdown was new in our modern Western era. I mean, counting down existed in other ways for millennia. It just wasn't referred to as such. I mean, I assume it did. It's a tough term to Google, and most of the sources that come up are articles from McCrossin herself. But, you know, for example, example, the practice of counting down before a race. I found at least one source for that in an account from a boat race at Cambridge University in 1865, although the term countdown was not used. But as for that second-by-second countdown to a big event, like so much in science, the practice may have had its origins in science fiction. Quoting again, The countdown associated with rocket launches had its origins in the Weimar Republic, where Fritz Lang's 1929 film Woman in the Moon featured an extended countdown to a moon rocket launch. No one had ever heard of or seen anything like the launch before, or the countdown. The lavish science fiction multi-reel film had an outsized impact on Germany's rocket scientists, who after World War II became central to the American space program. End quote. Rocket launches helped the idea of countdowns become ever more positive or just benign in the public eye. In the 70s, game shows and music shows proliferated around the countdown concept, either counting down to the top song of the week or giving contestants a timed period in which to answer questions, with a countdown clock looming above them. While New Year's celebrations, marking midnights with toasts, cheers, and kisses, had been well-established in America and other nations for generations, McCrossin says she can't find a case of counting down to midnight until 1953, when Ben Grauer, hosting the ball drop in Times Square, counted backwards from five. But hardly anyone heard it over all of their cheering. Grauer tried again in subsequent years, but no one ever joined in. It wasn't until Dick Clark took up the mantle with his Rockin' Eve in the 70s that the countdown finally became a thing. McCrossin says she can't find any evidence for the crowd enthusiastically joining in until 1979, but from then on, it became standard. Of course, that doesn't mean that people weren't doing it independently in their own homes. But now, countdown clocks are everywhere, and their meanings, both optimistic and apocalyptic. You know, we've got apps to count down to exciting moments like birthdays, but also climate clocks, our latest version of doomsday clocks. McCrossin refers to New Year's countdowns as Genesis countdowns, because when you get down to zero, time starts all over again. As she put it, quote, As 2021 gives way to 2022, it's hard to know what we are anticipating when the clock hits midnight, and so I suspect that some countdowns this year will be inflected with a tinge of hesitancy and doubt. Still, many of us will want to join in the hopefulness of the Genesis count, as did that Times Square crowd welcoming 1979 with their triumphant Happy New Year cheers, rejoicing when the clock starts again. End quote. (laughs) 
As someone who was basically raised by Nickelodeon in its most chaotic era, I tend to view smell-o-vision as the pinnacle of technical innovation. Does being able to smell what's on your TV or movie theater screen run the risk of being far more disgusting than pleasant? Absolutely. But for some reason, it's still incredibly appealing to me. What might be less appealing is taste of vision, if only because it requires the very non-COVID safe act of licking your TV screen, at least in the form one Japanese scientist has prototyped. Yes, a professor, Homei Miyashita, has invented a lickable TV screen. Quoting Reuters, The device, called Taste the TV, or TTTV, uses a carousel of 10 flavor canisters that spray in combination to create the taste of a particular food. The flavor sample then rolls on hygienic film over a flat-screen TV for the viewer to try. Miyashita works with a team of about 30 students that has produced a variety of flavor-related devices, including a fork that makes food taste richer. He said he built the TTTV prototype himself over the past year, and that a commercial version would cost about 100,000 yen, or about 875 US dollars, to make. End quote. Now, don't worry about your new pandemic-era disgust triggers. Miyashita was actually designing it with COVID in mind. He says it would work to enhance how we connect with the world from afar while you're safe at home. He sees applications for distance learning, for trades like cooking or wine tasting. And, of course, it could have a more fun application for games and quizzes. As a pub quiz host myself, I am intrigued yet horrified by the idea that I would be giving my quizzers a round where they would have to lick something and identify the flavor. Although actually, if it was like individual pads of paper or individual screens and not a communal bar TV, that does sound kind of fun. The photos of the TTTV make it look huge and bulky. The screen is puny in comparison to the rest of the hulking device. It definitely looks more set up for video conferencing than kicking back and enjoying a movie with added tongue action. But it is just a prototype. Miyashita is apparently in talks with companies about developing it for commercial use, so it would probably get slimmed down and optimized for different uses. I am definitely intrigued, but I'm not sure this is something I'd be buying into just yet even if the snozberries do taste like snozberries. Well, as you perhaps watched, the James Webb Space Telescope successfully launched into space on Saturday morning and is steadily on its way to Lagrange Point 2, or L2. And you can watch along the whole way with a new website from NASA that shows you in real time just where the telescope is, how fast it's traveling, what stage of the deployment timeline it's currently at, and more. And there's also a link on that page to re-watch the launch broadcast in case you missed it because I told you the wrong day last week. Sorry about that. Hopefully, since I told you a day earlier than the actual launch date, any of you who took my word for it figured it out. That wasn't even just one slip of the tongue either for the podcast. I literally had my personal calendar and alarm set for the wrong day and didn't realize until the morning of. I don't know, I had a heck of a time keeping the days and dates in order last week. I guess when you've been making a podcast a day on every single weekday for almost two years, you lose all sense of time on days that you don't make the podcast. 
In any case, the launch was very cool, and now we've got several months to watch Webb fully deploy and get calibrated before it gets to work showing us the secrets of the universe. But that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.